Let's see. Oh, uh, kind of cool that's, that things are starting to happen. We have more chairs in the room, obviously, uh, than we did uh, last week or the week before. And we are looking forward to doing our next baptisms, looking for probably Labor Day weekend like before. So if you're interested in that, just keep that in the back of your head. We will talk about that kind of soon. But as things happen, we're kind of moving forward in all of that. Uh, if you don't own a Bible and you would like one or forgot one, uh, you can use one, but you got to keep it because apparently we can't clean the paper off well enough, so you got to take it home. But there are Bibles on all the communion tables throughout the room. There are also sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, but if you have a smart device, you can download an app called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion. If you're in our local area, we will come up by GPS in your smart device. If you're not, type in the zip code 93455. We'll come up that way and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? I was told in first service I talked really fast last week. I'm going to try and slow down. This is Exodus 17, verse 7, and it says, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Uh, Father, today we ask that you would teach us that you are among us, no matter what we go through. And that we don't need to grumble or complain, that we need to be a people who simply trust you and that can walk into anything that comes our way. That you have shown us grace and mercy. And I ask that you teach us how to show that grace and mercy to those around us as well. Amen. Have a seat. Alright, so we are doing this thing called The Greatest Story Ever Retold, because there is this old Jesus movie called The Greatest Story Ever Told, and so it's kind of a play on the words. Not that I'm trying to retell the Jesus story, but I just thought it was kind of cool. Everybody, no one gets my joke when I say it, but whatever. Uh, so we're looking at different passages in the Bible in kind of a different way. Hopefully that expands our understanding of what's taking place in the Scriptures, because we really want all of these things to simply fit together so we understand the depth of what God does. Now, a couple of years ago, we did this series called Miracles Through the Summer, and we talked about the plagues in Egypt. Well, Eric Jafruti actually talked about the plagues in Egypt, and then how God brings his people out of slavery. And we talked about how God has his people Across the Red Sea, taking them from slavery then into freedom. We talked about how the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're starving for bread and God gives them bread. They call it manna uh, because they didn't know what to call it and manna simply means what is it? And so they call it what is it? And that's the name it gets forever. We're going to eat the what is it this morning. And then I showed you in the New Testament how Jesus comes and he talks about how he is the bread from heaven that has come down from heaven to rescue and to save us. And all of those stories could have been part of this retold series, and what we're talking about this week and next week could have been part of the Miracle series, but it's, but it's going here, but it all goes together. And I never got to the, the story we're talking about this week and the one next, next week. Today we're going to talk about how God brings water out of a rock to help this dehydrated, thirsty people, but really point it to what salvation means for us, what we are saved from, and how patient God is, and how He continues to chase after and bring His people back to Himself. If you have a Bible, open to Exodus chapter 17, that is the second book in the Old Testament, should be pretty easy to find. Uh, The book of Exodus and the story of Moses is really about the bigger issues of redemption and salvation. And I think it really, when you read it, can give us a bigger definition of what salvation means. A very long definition because it's a very long book, but really a, a bigger definition. I think the average person today, when they hear the word salvation, I think we don't know what to think about it sometimes. Some people are offended by the word when we say we need to be saved from ourselves or our rebellion against God or some of the ways that we see the world to get very offended by it. But really salvation is how
how God rescues us and brings us back into relationship with himself. But salvation also has the bigger ideas behind it that we are a people who are set free from the things that have enslaved us. We build our lives and our hopes on our own identities and on our, on our talents and all the things that we think that we are. We build all these things on not who God is, but upon who we think we are. And all those things will end up enslaving us in the end. And part of what salvation is, when God comes in, he liberates us from the chains to self, from all the ways that we think we have to find our identity and who we are or what we do. And this journey you see of the people in the book of Exodus, it really shows salvation in two different ways. First off, it shows salvation is a decisive moment. There's a turning point to it. The Israelites, they are leaving the realm of Pharaoh in this area and they cross the Red Sea and then they step out into this area where nobody owns. So they go from a place where they are owned by Pharaoh in a decisive moment, they cross the Red Sea and then they are free on the other side. When we trust in Christ, there is a decisive moment where we go from trusting in ourselves and finding our identity in ourselves to moving to the other side. And trusting what God has said, we go from slavery to freedom because of what God did in a moment. But you also see that there is a process to salvation. Uh, we in Christianity will call this word sanctification. It's this big word that really kind of means salvation in present time. We are saved positionally, but God will take and change us day by day to conform us more to the image and likeness of his son. And Exodus shows you that you can take people out of slavery in an instant, but slavery only comes out of people through a kind of a long process. See, the Israelites do not go immediately from Egypt into the promised land. There is this long process where they go through the wandering and the wilderness, and that's a lot like our lives. The gospel sets us free in an instant, but our character and our lives don't fully change probably the whole time we're alive on the earth. We keep doing some of the dumb things we used to. And God takes us through wildernesses, kind of like the whole book of Job, these places where we have to learn and grow from small disappointments to life-shattering difficulties and trouble. And so when we look at the retelling of what takes place is we see that God is patient with us as he walks us through all of these places where we change and where we grow. And ultimately what you will see that God has this patience, but he will bring about ultimate justice in the world and in our lives. God relates to everything we go through. So Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 1, this is how the story goes. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there is no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for wa- there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now the Israelites, they go through a bunch of experiences while they're in this wilderness walking in the desert. And you will see this word grumble come up over and over and over again. Grumble is this low level of discontent. Just like, maybe you have kids and you have to tell your kids no about something. And sometimes they don't listen, but sometimes they do, but they're not happy and they're, oh, and just kind of walk away grumbling. Maybe you have a boss and the boss says something you don't like and you're not talking back to him. You're like, oh, my boss. Just low level of disrespect. We also do that with God. We grumble when God calls us how to live our lives a certain way and we don't like it. Oh, God. We just kind of grumble. But the bigger thing that happens here is that grumbling leads to this thing that is called quarreling, quarreling. And this is really a key word for what takes place here. Uh, The summation of the entire thing happens in that verse I had you stand for, where it says, why do you quarrel with me? 
Now, if you've heard this story before, people love it because God brings water out of a rock, which is kind of a miracle. But really, the bigger deal is this whole idea of quarreling. Rabbinical commentators think this incident is here because of that word quarrel. And so you're probably thinking, well, what's the big deal about quarreling? Well, obviously, the English word doesn't get it across for what it means. The Hebrew word translated here as quarrel is a technical term that means to bring a charge against. It's centered around formal charges that institute legal proceedings. It's like someone is going uh, on Judge Judy. The cases are real. The judgments are real. It's, it's Judge Judy. What is happening is Moses is being accused of criminal negligence that is going to lead to manslaughter because he has led them out to the wilderness and there's no water and they think they're going to die. And they think we got to get that guy before we all die. Exodus 17 verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. That is why he says that, because it's moving somewhere. Here's your retold narrative. Israel is doing this because they keep going through trials. Uh, they've come out of Egypt and they had one thing after another. Imagine if COVID went on for 40 years. Right? Uh, we're like a year and a couple of months in, and it is like civil war, rebellion. We're going to, and 40 years, imagine that. So they, they cry out in slavery in Egypt. They, they flee, they cross the Red Sea. Uh, then there's starvation, and now it's thirst. And it's weird, that's the progression, because usually you die of thirst much faster than you die of starvation, but I digress. So uh, they essentially charge Moses, you are a bad leader. You're bringing us out here, and you're going to kill us all. And he tells God, not that God doesn't know, they're ready to stone me, because that's the execution. That's what you did with somebody who was found guilty of a capital offense. And so the people are charging Moses, but what does Moses do? Moses' defense is, you're not after me. You're after God himself. That's who you're after because Moses looks like he's in charge, but he's not really in charge. Verse 2, Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? He says, it's God that you are really after. If you want to put someone on trial, it better be God himself. And I don't think that's Moses deflecting. I think he's just saying this is the reality of what's going on. And so Moses says to God, what am I supposed to do with these people? What am I supposed to do? Again, like if you have kids, sometimes you just get so frustrated. You're like, oh, what am I supposed to do with you? Oh! It's like, the point of the place here is that Moses' patience has run out. The people's patience has run out. But God's patience has not come to an end. God does not kill them all. He actually gives them grace. And so when Moses says, what am I supposed to do with this people? God says, you know what you're supposed to do with those people who are quarreling, those people who are rejecting and disdaining me and the people who are trying to kill you? We're going to meet their needs. That's what we're going to do. Uh, Exodus 17, verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, I told you all the way back in, in the miracle series that Tim Keller likes to call all these stories in the book of Exodus the gospel according to Moses, or the lost language of salvation. Because even here, you will see the patience of God. And here there's this old English word that gets used that's really good. It is called long-suffering. That God is long in how he suffers us and all of our craziness. Keller says that God's patience doesn't just mean a bare tolerance where you put up with someone. It means that the people who have rejected you and so deserve rejection get served anyway. 
And so in the story, everyone's patience is at an end, like I said, but God's patience isn't. You will see different places in the Torah, in those first five books of the Bible, where God is like, okay, now I'm going to discipline you because now you've got to grow up. But here, there's tons of patience. And if we could just understand who God is, like how we went through the book of Job, I think it would make us be a people who don't freak out so much and a people who are much more at peace with the things that come into our lives. Because when we're focused on God, we are not focused upon us. In Exodus, there are these things in every single chapter, all these incidents, almost every single page, where the Israelites move into another horrible situation and God meets them where they are. They need to be liberated. God liberates them. They need to be fed. God feeds them. They need to be saved. God saves them. They need to be defended. God defends them every single time. Every single time God shows up. If you took every minute one in the scriptures, in the book of Exodus, so far, there are about 38 times now that God has showed up and saved them. So this is time number 39. And at time number 39, they say again, well, you can't trust this God. He's never around when you need him. It's like, what? I mean, you read the story compressed like that, and you think, what a bunch of idiots. Those people are terrible. Some people have said it's so stupid, it must be made up, because no group of people could be that dumb. And I think, have you met us? Have you met us? (laughs) You know, why wouldn't they say, oh, hey, there's no water. Let's see what God's going to do. This is going to be amazing. But they don't. They misquote God. They judge God. They quarrel. They doubt. They complain against. But God continues to save them patiently over and over and over, even though they never give him any credit. And you may not see this in your life or my life, but this is so who we are. Something goes wrong in our life, and we're like, oh, where's God? Why did he let this happen? And we totally freak out. Research has shown that our memory is so short with good things that come towards us. Our memory is very long with bad things, but good things, it's so short. Good and true memories fade incredibly fast, and bad things stay and they get distorted a hundred times longer. Someone criticizes you in a hurtful way, your memory holds on to that. Like there used to be that thing that said you need a hundred compliments to offset one negative thing somebody says. And I don't know if that's true or not, but research kind of bears that out a little bit. But I think the same thing happens with failure or the same thing with unanswered prayer. Like the one time you feel like God didn't come through and God didn't answer your prayer, you think, oh my goodness, and that's sticks in your memory so much longer than every single time he actually did come through. But that's how the human heart is. It's like the last time God came through for us was 2,000 years ago on the cross. He's never done anything again for me. What's up with this God? You know, it's 30 years ago when it could have just been 30 seconds ago. Think about the Israelites. What did they just eat for breakfast? Manna. God, by a miracle, puts it on the ground so they don't starve. They just ate the manna. And now they're like, I can't trust this God. He just doesn't care about me. I mean, it's so crazy. When tragedy strikes our world today, people say, well, there's no God. If there was a God, he wouldn't let this happen. But no one looks at the immeasurable joy that comes to us every single day and says, oh, my goodness, God must be real. Look at all of this goodness. None of us do that. We tend to look at the bad and how we think he has let us down. Our lives are distorted because of our own sin. And that means we are just like the Israelites. We are always freaking out. One writer says Exodus is supposed to be like a mirror that shows us our own life. You walk into a room, and on their side of the room, you see like, like a portrait. You're like, oh, that's a weird portrait. And you walk closer, you're like, that is the ugliest portrait. Why was somebody hanging that portrait up? Then you get right in front of it, and you realize, oh, it's a mirror. I'm looking at myself the entire time. Like that's, this, that's what Exodus does for us. We, we are a people who don't have a bird's eye view of our life. We have a life on the ground of how we see things. God sees the terrain. God sees the bigger picture. 
And when we're finally able to trust God in that, that he sees things better than we do, that he has a better perspective than us, we can stop freaking out so much. We must understand that God calls us in our lives to be those who understand his patience and live with him because he continually comes through. When we live our lives on the ground without trusting God's view over us, we will freak out because we think we have to be in charge of everything. But we never really have any idea what's going on whatsoever. We get stuck in the details. We are a people who are in the story. We're not writing the story. We're not the people who are reading the story. We're actually in the story. And so often for us, we feel like God's care for us was long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. See, the people of Israel, they're not stupid. They're just like us. Unless you call yourself stupid, then maybe they're, they're, they're just like us. But Moses, I think, puts this account here so that we would see that every comfort we've enjoyed, every talent that we've had, our very existence is from God himself. And when we freak out, it shows there's something wrong with our focus and with our hearts and our spiritual memory. And it helps a lot to remember that our perspective is always skewed. And that's why these stories are good for us. The patience of God is so important for us to remember because it changes our perspective of everything. One writer says about the desert experience of our life, says, it's not until you get into a place where God is all that you have that you realize all along God was all you needed. I'll say this another way. Uh, you never know God is all you need to get to a place where you find that God was all that you had all along. Uh, Gunnar Rutenborn was a German Lutheran pastor. He wrote this play called The Sign of Jonah, and it was right after World War II. And it was trying to help people see what had happened after World War II and how everybody was kind of denying the death camps and these things that had happened. And so in the play, they go to the common people, and the common people say, oh, it it wasn't our fault, Uh, it was the leader's fault. And so they go to the leaders, and the leaders say, it wasn't our fault, it's the senior leader's fault. And they go to the senior leaders, and they have the same excuses. And then in the play, they all realize at the same moment, and they go, oh, we know who's to blame. We know who should be judged for this it's God. Why did God make a world in which these things could have actually happened? Why would God allow these things to take place? Surely God deserves the blame for the evil and suffering in the world, the evil and suffering that we have done. And this is what our world today does. And so I think what Exodus 17 does is it answers all of these things for us. It gives us God's greater perspective, also understanding how we have run away from him and caused a whole lot of issues. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? There's like, doesn't God deserve to be blamed for all of this suffering? So Moses has been charged. He goes to God because it's God who they're after. And God says, this is what we're going to do. So first he says, take in your hand the staff that you struck the Nile with. So go grab that staff. This is very significant because a staff was a symbol of judicial authority. Uh, in ancient times, not just in the nation of Israel, almost every ancient culture, judges would have some type of staff or rod. You think of judges today, they have a gavel, kunk, kunk, kunk. Uh, in ancient Rome, they had a thing called the fasces, and it was, a, it was an axe surrounded by a bundle of sticks tied with the red ribbon. And who was in judicial authority would take that, and that would be their symbol of their authority. And if you went before them, and you were pronounced guilty, they would take one of those rods and they would smack you with it as a sign of justice upon your injustice in your life. Anytime a man was found guilty, they would, get, they would hit with that. But here, this rod that Moses has is the one that God took and meted out justice upon Egypt for the oppression of the Israelite slaves. And so this is the instrument of eternal, divine, perfect justice. And God says, 
taking with you some of the elders of Israel. So the elders are the ones who would stand as the people who would be the witnesses at a trial. There's going to be condemnation. You have to have a trial. Here's the witnesses. So here's what God is doing. God says to everybody, you want a trial? You're quarreling? Okay, we're going to have a trial. Out comes Moses and he's got the rod and he's got the elders around him. The first shock of everybody watching this is like, oh my goodness, he's coming after us. We thought Moses was going to be sentenced, but Moses has the rod and the elders and here he comes as the judge. So Moses is probably walking towards the people. You imagine the Israelites like, oops, what do we do now? They might be passing out. But then the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people. I mean, this has to be kind of shocking to Moses and the people because he's going to pass by them all those grumblers and complainers. He's going to pass them by. Moses knows there's going to be a trial. God knows there's going to be a trial. The Israelites know there's going to be a trial. The elders know there's going to be a trial. So who's going to be sentenced here? Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, to stand before, in ancient terminology, is used as the language of an inferior to a superior. Nowhere in all of Scripture does God ever say this except this place right here in Exodus 17. This is the only place he says this. If a king met a commoner on the road and they stood face to face, the commoner would have been said to stand before the king. Now, God is not saying that we are superior to him, that we are better in any way, but God is saying, I am going to stand in the inferior's place. I'm going to stand in your place on the rock at Horeb. And this is why I think this is the miracle, not the water from the rock. But this is the miracle right here because God says, I will stand before you. God is going to stand in the place of the trial where the prisoner gets tried and executed. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock. You shall bring down the rod of justice where I am said to stand. That's what God is saying. It's like, let me put this together for you. First, whenever we are in the presence of evil or injustice or suffering, even if it's caused by us ourselves, there is a deep sense of judgment on injustice that we think must happen. It is very possible to turn that sense of anger and injustice back towards God and say, God, this is all your fault when it's our fault. Uh, Do you know in World War II, when the Allied soldiers were freeing some of these death camps and the German soldiers surrendered, some of the Allied troops still shot them because they were so offended, they didn't know what to do with their anger at what happened in these death camps? In Rutenborn's play, the characters are all deflecting these accusations away from themselves towards God himself. It is so remarkable to me that we get angry at God for all the awful things in the world. When the fact of the matter is that we are the ones who bring about horrendous evil and injustice and suffering. It is all the actions of human beings. And what right do we have as flawed people to say, God, you're to blame for all that we've done. God, you're responsible for this. We have no idea the beginning from the end of what God is doing in the world. And yet we respond to him like there's something wrong with him. And does God look at us and say, oh, you little insects, fee fi fo from, I'm going to step on some human scum. No, God doesn't do that. The response of God is forgiveness and grace. He takes Israel's sins upon himself because they could not bear them themselves. So he stands before them at the rock at Horeb. 
In Rutenborn's play, they pass this sentence in the play, it's very interesting, uh, that says, let God become a human being. Let God become a wanderer on the earth. Let God be the one who is deprived of rights and becomes homeless and hungry and has no place to lay his head. Let God have a son and let that son be killed so he can understand the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he'll be disgraced and ridiculed. I mean, you can see where Rutenborg's going with all this, obviously. But Edmund Clowney says this. The astounding thing about Exodus 17 is that God, in His infinite mercy, goes beyond and gives us more than we have wrongfully asked when we say, you should be blamed. Because God does come down, and He does take the blow of judgment. Not just for Moses or the Israelites, but for all of us. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, I'm going to put this together for you because, yes, God sees the injustice and the pain in our world. He, he sees that. But the second thing is God actually does something about it. The bigger deal of the human condition and who we are. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says the retold reality of this event in Exodus 17 is more than we could actually ever imagine. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, the cloud would be how God led them. During the day, there would be a cloud. At night, it would be a pillar of fire. It's probably the same thing, just in the day, you couldn't see the fire. They were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Okay, verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food. That would be the manna. Verse 4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So, what does God say? Bring down the rod of justice upon me. Who was that pointing towards? Jesus Christ. God didn't smite them. God didn't leave them in that moment, because ultimately, it all points to the cross. On the cross, what does Jesus do? He takes the blow of judgment for us. And this is also kind of cool. In John 7, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow out of him. He takes the bowl of justice, and now what gets to flow out of us are rock-hard hearts. Living water. Living water. One writer says this, If there is no judge in the world, there is no hope for the world, because evil will win. If there is no judge, what hope is there for the world? But if there is a judge, what hope is there for us? That's the scary thing. Because if there is a judge and the world does need to be judged for all the injustice and unrighteousness we see in the world around us, and that judge comes up, well, what does that do with us? Unless the judge is Jesus. Unless Jesus is the one who takes that blow in our place. Because if he does, then God has a way to deal with suffering and evil and be able to wipe it out without wiping us out. Because he takes the blow. When we are in the wilderness of our lives, when we feel like uh, we have no hope, when we need restoration and grace and all that, we feel like there's no next day, we must move our eyes from ourselves, from our complaining, and to the cross. Because we see what He did to rescue and save us. God has always been good for His promises. God has never once left us. I know you can be like the Israelites and feel like it has happened, but He has never once left us. I think God does miracles small and great every single day around us. And we must be a people who reflect on what He does and all the goodness we receive and rejoice in it. Uh, as I think I said last week, you've got you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because when we do, we can walk through everything. But I think the biggest thing is looking back to what He did when He took the blow for us in that place. 
Okay? And, and taking the blow for us doesn't mean that God just sits there and, and he's like, look what I did. Now you got to now grovel your whole life. It's look what I did. Enjoy because I love you. And that will change how we begin to live as a people. How we understand our own lives and our own grumbling, our own quarreling. And that we begin to offer the same grace that we have first received. When we understand the amazingness of what takes place in the scriptures, it changes us completely. Because this is one of the reasons every week at Element we come to this place and we talk about communion. Now, maybe communion's weird during this time. I get it. I really do. Um, and maybe you want to do it at home and not hear anything like that. But communion, you take a cracker and you break it. And it reminds us of Christ's body that was broken for us. And you, and you drink or dip it in wine or grape juice. It's a reminder of Christ's blood that was shed for us. That the blow came down upon Christ himself instead of coming down on us. The blow that we deserved. Think of all the anger and animosity that you have many times with people around you who do things that hurt or offend you. I cannot believe how bad drivers are right now. I have no idea what's going on, but people have definitely gotten worse. It's not me. It's all them. And I, drive, and I, just, and, and I love uh, what Steve Pruitt said about what he was giving up for his Lenten journey. He said he was giving up complaining about all these people, that low-level grumbling whenever he drove anywhere. And I thought, man, I wish I could do that. But you can, when we have the understanding that as irritated as I am, the blow that was meant for them, for anybody else, and for me, was taken by Christ himself. And that changes our attitude towards everything. Maybe you have a a relationship that is falling apart, and you're just like, oh, it's all them, I can't believe that, da-da-da. Well, maybe, maybe it's a place to say, well, God took the blow for me. So how can I step in and love you in the midst of this? How can I help to show you what redemption truly is, but how I love you, how God first loved me, because God has this deep, enduring patience with his people that we, I just think, can't completely understand at all. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion, and as you do, use it as a moment to lay down all the things you're going through in your life. Uh, Take uh, the time for the songs that are coming up, maybe to refocus on who God is and what he is actually doing in your life right now in all of these unexpected ways. Maybe to begin to understand that, that yes, you know, there, there needs to be some judgment on injustice in the world. But God ultimately takes that upon himself and then sends us out to be his ambassadors, his hands and feet to the world because our lives need to look different. Our lives need to change. Again, this is why I say everything in the scriptures ultimately points to Jesus. And this is why our lives and everything we do ultimately must point to Christ. And if you guys need prayer, uh, just go back and see Sarah at the Welcome Center. We'll connect you with somebody to pray this morning. If you're in a place that you really just need someone to come alongside you and pray through that understanding of God's great rescue over you, how he took the rod so that we get to live in peace and freedom and living waters now get to flow out of every single one of us. Now, there's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response. And I invite you to grab uh, the sermon notes, really the questions through today, and talk to one another through those questions, maybe over lunch or dinner or sometime this week. Really coming down to the ideas, maybe just spend some time talking about all the good things that God has done in your life that you fail to give Him credit for. I got this thing. I know I've, I got this hang up with driving. I get it. Uh, but every time I, dr- I get a green light, I'm like, wow, thank you. Because my wife even says that there is something wrong with me. 
because I drive through and I hit every single red light. She goes, it, it, it is impossible. And I'm like, walk into my world. And it's how, how it happens. And every time I hit like, just a green light, I'm like, wow, thank you, God, for your goodness. And it might seem weird, but I think if we live our lives in constant praise of who he is, it's going to begin to change how we see the world around us. And that constant praise will only come out of first understanding his rescue of us at that place where he takes the blow in our place and gives us his life. Uh, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us to be a people who understand what you have done to rescue us and to bring us back to yourself. I ask that we would see you as you are, our God, that we would put our hope and our faith and our trust in you. And that we would understand that your patience is long-suffering. So often, Father, we think that you are looking at us in disapproval. And yet you look at us through the eyes of a Father who wants to bring us back to yourself. And yet, in that understanding, it's not just us that you bring to you, it's all of us. And you take us as your kids and send us as your kids back out into the world so we can also be long-suffering. That we are long-suffering because you first have been with us. I ask that all of our lives would come out of the understanding of our great salvation. And that as we change and live differently... It wouldn't be through something to make you love us more. It would simply be the response of your great love for us. And that we would speak of the truths of your mercy and your grace. And we treat one another the way you treat us. And that we would stand in the place of others. That we would pray for them and love them. And bless them as you have first blessed us. Teach us to live out our lives fully in worship of you, showing who you are as individuals and as a community of faith who call you our God. Have us deeply understand our rescue and how then we, in great joy, get to live out that rescue every single day. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.